The Lord's Day for this afternoon is Lord's Day 17, where we have our confession about the benefit of our Lord's resurrection. And we confess there. How does Christ's resurrection benefit us? First, by his resurrection, he has overcome death so that he could make us share in the righteousness which he has obtained for us by his death. Second, by his power, we too are raised up to a new life. Third, Christ's resurrection is to us a sure pledge of our glorious resurrection. After the sermon, let us sing together hymn 31b, both stanzas. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, this afternoon we focus our attention on the resurrection of our Savior. Now, if you would take the amount of time spent on the resurrection in our catechism as any indication of importance, we might think must be some kind of minor doctrine. Just look back to Lord's Day 16. All those questions and answers about the death and the burial of our Lord Jesus Christ. Many, many questions, and then when it comes to the resurrection, just one relatively short question and answer. It's interesting. Previous Lord's Day even dedicated a whole answer to the burial of our Savior. How that was proof that He really died. But when it comes to speaking about the resurrection, no effort is made to prove that He really rose from the dead. Of course, sometimes you have to keep in mind when the Catechism was written and you say, well, what were the issues? What were the controversies back then? And it is true that could say the main opponents of the Reformed position, be it Roman Catholics and the Baptists, no issue. They all accepted the resurrection of our Savior. So there's no need to go into detail. Still, overall, the treatment of the resurrection, we have to admit, does look rather skimpy. Now, the brevity of the catechism dealing with the resurrection, however, should not fool us. For obviously when the catechism was put together and they thought, now what is a suitable unit of teaching every Sunday? It was deemed suitable to take the whole doctrine of the resurrection in the Lord's day by itself. Because even though the summary might be very succinct and really capture a lot of points in a few words, there is much that is to be said about it, much scriptural teaching that we have to also pay attention to. And you notice how the Catechism very neatly breaks it down into three main points. Always very good for a sermon to bring it down to three points. It's interesting. You can even line it up with the way that, if you go back to the previous Lord's Day, it was brought out how really Christ's death affects our righteousness, it affects our legal standing before God, it affects our holiness, it affects our redemption. When you come to Lord's Day 17, you begin to realize that even though it was stressed, Christ had to die for our salvation. None of these things, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption, 
would be there without the resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. For the gospel, even though Paul could sum it up sometimes as the gospel of Christ crucified, that's a very succinct statement. You can't leave it at that. You can't simply say, we preach the cross. Yes, we do. But we also preach Christ who died, but who rose again. If you stop at the cross, you don't have the whole gospel. As a matter of fact, we would not be saved from our sins. Essential that Christ rose from the dead. And that we may be clear on this, also in our minds, that we also might find the benefit and the comfort of our Lord's resurrection. I proclaim to you this afternoon, if Christ had not been raised, our faith is futile. And we see this by considering the significance of Christ's resurrection for our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. So if Christ has not been raised, our faith is futile. And first of all, we consider the significance of Christ's resurrection for our righteousness. Now to see the significance of our Lord's resurrection for our righteousness, we turn our attention to the passage that we read from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. You know, letter to the Corinthians has, one of those, has some of those key chapters that the children learn about, sometimes just a one-liner. You know, when somebody says, well, what do you find in 1 Corinthians 13? Of course, the children say, that's the love chapter. But when you say 1 Corinthians 15, then right away, also I'm sure the children will say, oh, that's the resurrection chapter. And if they don't say it yet, they should say it after the sermon today. We should all say it. Right away, think. 1 Corinthians 13, love chapter. 1 Corinthians 15, resurrection chapter. In that particular chapter, you get the most comprehensive discussion by the Apostle Paul about the topic of the resurrection. All kind of aspects are brought to the fore. We only read the first 28, but you could read the rest of the chapter and learn more about the resurrection. Now, such an extensive treatment of a particular point of doctrine or lifestyle in any of the letters that generally indicates that there was a particular problem in this matter that needed to be addressed. Because when you read through 1 Corinthians, you will see that Paul is addressing, he must have gotten a whole list of questions perhaps. He's addressing one question after the other. Now, what was the problem with respect to the understanding of the resurrection. If you look at what Paul is writing in 1 Corinthians 15, it's not so much that some denied the resurrection of Christ. That seems to have been accepted. Rather, it was said by some that there is no resurrection of the dead. But now Paul points out that if you hold this position, that there is no resurrection of the dead then you cannot hold on to the fact that Jesus Christ arose from the dead. You can't have it both ways. Either there is a resurrection or there isn't. If there isn't, then also Christ did not rise from the dead. So Paul, first of all, shows there is a logical fallacy. You cannot have those two kind of opinions. And then he goes on to show, now, what would it happen if Christ had not been raised from the dead? Well, for one thing... It would mean that he, as an apostle, had not faithfully preached the gospel. Because the gospel is that both Christ died on the cross and he arose on the third day. 
But more significant is that if Christ had not been raised, he writes in verse 17, you are still in your sins. To use the words to Corinthians 1 verse 30, Christ would not righteousness. We would not be justified. Now, Paul does not elaborate on why this is so, beyond stating the fact that we would not be righteous. We would not, we would still be in our sins. We get further elaboration. We pull in some other parts of Scripture now. For example, Romans 4, verse 25. You know, the broader discussion in Romans 3, chapter 4, even into 5, is how we are righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. And then Paul writes in Romans 4, verse 25, that Christ was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Always keep in mind, justification and righteousness Those are basically synonyms. The word justification is derived from the Latin language and righteousness is rooted in the English language. For some reason or another, our translators aren't always consistent and they flip them back and forth, but they mean the same thing. He was raised to life for our justification, or you could say raised to life that we might be righteous before God. Now that does raise the question what Paul means by saying that our Lord was raised for our justification. And you can see two aspects there. First, by stating that God raised Jesus from the dead, we can see how the resurrection of our Lord is proof to us that the death of Jesus Christ accomplished its purpose. You know, should it ever come into our minds that we doubt whether Christ's death was sufficient, whether it really took care of all our sins, then we look to the risen Christ, and there, as it were, you could say, the Father says, now here is confirmation. Don't doubt that it was enough. It was enough. I raised him as evidence of that fact. Now, second, there is also the aspect that Christ's death is important for us because now, as he was raised for our justification, it is a matter of him being raised so he can apply the benefits of his death so that the risen Christ can come to us and say, I blanket you, I cover you with my righteousness. I cover all your sins. Of course, as we speak about this, how our Lord Jesus Christ is applying the benefits of his death, you have to let your mind run ahead a little bit into into what other things we say about the Lord Jesus Christ, that he ascended into heaven. And we know he is there at the right hand of God. He is there interceding for us. It's all explained in Lord's Day 18. But that work of the high priest, the high priest had to be alive to apply the benefits of the sacrifice to those who belong to him. Now, as we see then, our Lord Jesus Christ applying the benefits, always speaking on our behalf. Important to see that. He had to be alive to do that. It was no good if he was in the grave. That was still, in a sense, an incomplete work. Yes, the work of atoning was, sat, was finished, but just the way the Lord Jesus Christ went to the Father. We know he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. 
all an important aspect, all important steps, but not sufficient yet to be the atoning high priest. He had to become alive again. And then as the living Savior, the living risen Lord, in that capacity, he went up into the heavens just like the high priest in the Old Testament went into the Holy of Holies. And there he presented the blood of the sacrifice. Sometimes it's good in our mind to kind of peel those different aspects apart, like our catechism does, to show you all the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us and kind of understand again that against the background of how it went in the Old Testament tabernacle and temple, the sacrifice, but then taking the blood to be presented before God. The Lord Jesus, as the risen Lord, took the evidence of his sacrifice in his body to the Father to atone for our sins. So we see how important the resurrection is for our righteousness. It's proof that his sacrifice was sufficient. It's essential for our righteousness that as risen, living Lord, he is applying those benefits to us. And with that clear in our minds, we can move to our second point, where we consider the importance of his resurrection for our holiness. Now, always keep in mind when we deal with the work of Christ that we speak about how His work affects our righteousness and our holiness. And the righteousness, that has to do with our legal standing before God. The word justification comes in, that it's a legal term. We are guilty the Lord Jesus Christ addressed that guilt by paying the penalty for us. So our legal status is changed from being guilty to being innocent. But as we speak about justification, we also speak about the effect of our Lord's death and resurrection on the way we are already now in this life, on our nature. Our old nature is, has fallen into sin, but the work of Jesus Christ brings about a renewal of our nature. We are born again. And then we speak about our sanctification. And we have to realize that the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ plays an important role here as well. You think of the way the Apostle Paul wrote about it in Romans 6, for example, where he says, well, Romans, think about it, you were baptized. What does that mean? Well, it means you identify with Christ in His death, but you also identify with Christ in His resurrection. Because what happened to Christ, the crucifixion, death, and burial, happens to our old nature. There is a crucifixion, death, and burial of the new and old nature, and a coming to life of the new. Something happens in the lives of God's children. We use the term that we are born again, a spiritual transformation. It's not just the case that God says, now I change your legal status, I take away the sentence of condemnation and I acquit you, but He says, I'm changing you, I'm renewing you. I mentioned Romans chapter 6. You can read that for yourself later on at home, a beautiful chapter where Paul then also works it through to show the implications for the life of the Christian. The Christian can no longer walk in the way of the old nature. It doesn't belong there anymore. You can't say, well, I'll sin all the more so grace may abound. Paul gets quite 
upset by that whole thought. That's why he brings this whole comparison in. You died with Christ, you rise with him, evidenced in your baptism. So, there is now the call to show that something has changed in us by the work of God through Jesus Christ and the work of the Spirit. And so in that respect, if you keep on reading in Romans chapter 6, you can see how, how in essence Paul is calling his readers to show that they are being sanctified, to show that they are a born-again people because they have a living Savior who is working in them. So therefore, indeed, the resurrection of Christ has tremendous consequences for the way we go about our lives. Because we have a living Christ who works in us. We know He does it by the Spirit, but we can just compress it now. The living, risen Christ works in us. Of course, the way the Spirit works in us, the way He does that, is will be worked out later on in Lord's Day 20. Now, focus on the fact that there is the power of the risen Lord at work in us. And again we see how the resurrection is the necessary complement to the death of Christ. His death means the dying of our old nature. His resurrection means the coming to life of our new nature. You know, the Apostle Paul, he, he brings this out, for example, in a passage like Ephesians 2, the verses 4 to 6. We read there, But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive. You know that? He made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in trespasses. It is by grace you have been saved, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. You see those, those words that make you realize that, in essence, what we see happening to Christ happens to us. As we die with him, we, raise, we are raised with him. It's not just a doctrine about Christ. It's a doctrine about us as Christians who are identified with the Lord Jesus Christ. He even goes so far the way Paul writes there in Ephesians 2 that in essence you can already say we are seated with Christ in the heavens. It's quite remarkable. We sit here in church on earth. But in principle, because we belong to Christ, we are already sitting in the heavens. Quite a, quite a thought to kind of process there. All because we identify with the risen Savior. Now Paul brings this out also further. You know, the consequences of believing in the risen Savior and how that affects us. He, I think of Colossians 3, the verses 1 to 3 in this regard. He writes there, Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Notice again, you have been raised with Christ. It's not just a doctrine there, Christ arising, doctrine that affects us. And our brothers and sisters, we need to grasp the truth that the risen Christ is now at work in us, is raises up to a new life. The whole process of sanctification is taking place. If we don't see that, we will constantly be frustrated 
by any call we hear from the pulpit to holy living. Because we might think, well, I can't do that. We might even have very pious excuses like, what do you expect from me? Why do you chase after me? I'm only a weak sinner, you know. But if you look at all the calls to holy living in Paul's letter, you will see that without fail, these calls come within the context of having a risen, living Savior who is working in us. It doesn't come to people who who are still in the old nature. It comes to the people who have been given the new nature with Jesus Christ. Take again of passages in Romans 6 and Colossians 3. And just to quote one more from the from the, from the Colossians 3, Paul wrote, Since then you have been raised with Christ. That's the reality. We have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above. You see, God does not call to holy living without first justifying us and then working in us. And we run into problems when we quickly kind of throw up our hands and say, well, I can't. It's true. On our own, we can't. But the marvel is that we are not called to do this on our own. The marvel is that the gospel is about a risen Christ working in us, giving us a new power. And so whenever we hear the call to holy living, then the first thing we have to do is look to our Lord Jesus Christ and say, Lord, I hear the call and I rely now on your strength. For you see, the Lord God never calls us to do anything without first of all equipping us. To think of Paul's words to the Philippians about working out our own salvation. He didn't say work for your own salvation, but he says work it out. How can you do that? Because, he says, God is at work in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. We need to take this gospel seriously. You know, we can indeed come across as pious. Oh, I can't do anything. True. But Christ can, and the Spirit can, and they're working in us. Work it out. Work with it. And the more seriously we take the doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what it means for us, the more seriously we can get to work at living in a way that pleases and praises God. Now, by now, we have seen the significance of the risen Lord for our righteousness, our legal standing, and then for our holiness, has to do with our nature, our sanctification. We turn to our last point, where we see the significance for our redemption. Now, when we speak about our redemption, then we have to think in even far broader terms, because you could say, well, isn't our whole salvation described as our redemption? It is. But when we think about the full meaning of the word redemption, then we should always keep in mind Redemption is restoration. You see what that means when you bring to mind the laws in the Old Testament times, the laws about redemption. What was the purpose of that? Well, if someone had lost his property, he had come into poverty, had to sell it, lost his freedom, then family members had to step in, or eventually, if they couldn't do that, the year of Jubilee would come. A person would be redeemed. He would be bought free from his debt, 
and he would get his property back. They could go back to the family farm. That's what redemption is about. Getting back to square one. Being able to start over again. Now, with respect to our situation before God, when we speak about redemption, well, that calls for the complete undoing of all the consequences of our sins. And this means that we look forward to the undoing of death itself. Death in the sense of the word that we first of all associate with it, and that is in terms of physical death. There is not full redemption till death is gone altogether. Now here we go again to our scripture reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Because there, as we came to about verse 20, Paul joyfully proclaimed that Christ had truly been raised from the dead. And then, then Paul says, Christ is the firstfruits. That's a term from the harvest of the Old Testament people of Israel. And when they brought the first fruits of the harvest, that indicated that, of course, the rest of the harvest was still going to come. But the first fruit of the harvest was on the Feast of Weeks, which we call Pentecost. Now, keep in mind, the first fruits that indicates in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have just the beginning of the harvest, the harvest from the graves. Now, by describing him as the first fruits, Paul is also showing the certainty that the rest of us who believe in him will follow in due time. As he makes that point in 1 Corinthians 15, we can also find it Romans 8, verse 11. Read, for example, And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who lives in you. You see, Paul is looking further, not just that the new nature is being, is being formed in us by the Spirit, but the resurrection of our bodies. Mortal bodies will become immortal, something he describes in more detail in the next part of 1 Corinthians 15 as well. We also see how he expressed that in the letter to the Philippians, when he writes about eagerly expecting the coming of the Lord Jesus. And he says, Philippians 3, verse 21, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Now, at this particular point, there is no need to go into details about the nature of this resurrection body. That's why we did not read all of 1 Corinthians 15, because it's going to be dealt with Lord's Day 22, where it speaks about our hope of the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. So there, all those kind of questions can be addressed. But the point here is that Christ's resurrection is a pledge, the Catechism says. It's a guarantee of the full redemption of our lives. Our soul is redeemed, but also our body, because both have been affected by the fall into sin. And the language of first fruits drives home that the Lord Jesus Christ is not the only one who is going to enjoy the resurrection of the body, but all those who belong to him will also receive that in due time. 
And again, you see how the resurrection of our Lord serves as the necessary complement to His death. Because without the resurrection of our Lord, our salvation is really left hanging in midair. But then we have that resurrection. We said the pledge, where the catechism uses, a guarantee of what we will receive. And as bodily creatures, the subject to the process of aging, and you can't deny that, it's going to show up in your life sooner or later as your bones get creaky and your mind can't remember as many things anymore. Source of comfort to know that this is not the end. We might end this life kind of creaky. Our lives might be full of decay by the time we finally go to the grave. It's not the end. It's a great source of comfort. Also, as we think about our loved ones who may already have gone before us to be with the Lord. And we may have had to go to the cemetery and see their bodies be put into the grave. As we think of the risen Lord, and we know that's not the end. It's not the end. It's not the final farewell for Christians when they have to go to the cemetery. One day, like the Lord Jesus Christ arose, we will arise. Now, it's interesting, in John chapter 6, when the Lord Jesus, he, he describes himself as the bread from heaven. And then, as he does that, and he speaks about those who eat this bread from heaven, those who eat, he explains later on, that is his flesh and blood, he says that they will live. And he even specifies a number of times that he will raise them up at the last day. It impresses upon us that eating the bread from heaven, that is, believing in Jesus Christ, is our vaccination, is our immunization against eternal decay in the grave. Notice that. Believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, eating the living bread, immunizes you. Yes, your bodies may go to dust eventually. The bodies of our loved ones go to dust. But no, it can't get it. can't ultimately get it. The Lord Jesus Christ will reconstitute it, will give a glorious resurrection body. His own body is proof of that. And so when we take it all together then, we can see that the gospel is the gospel of the cross, but it cannot stop there. We should also speak about the crucified one who arose from the dead. His resurrection is an absolutely essential complement if we are going to be righteous before God, if we are going to be holy before God, if we are going to receive the full redemption of all of life, even to the point of a resurrection body. For every aspect of what our Lord has done, His whole ministry, every step, no step was wasted, all an important part of the gospel of salvation. Now, the resurrection of our Lord does underline our only comfort. As we know, we are safe under the care of our living Lord who is working for us and He's working in us. And for that reason, we have every reason to sing with joy, Christ has risen. Hallelujah. Amen.